You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, friends, if you weren't here for adult Sunday school class, I did mention at the end that we wanted to deal with the subject of is always wrong to lie. And uh, I'm going to pick that up next week. I sort of put you off and put you off and put you off through the q and I'm going to deal with that next Sunday because we're canceling services for next Sunday as well. So we'll tackle that in the Q&A on next Sunday for adult Sunday school class. Um, this is as odd for me as it is for you to be doing, to be working on, um, to be doing church on a live stream. Um, this is bizarre. Um, so if you think this is weird, trust me, I feel the weirdness. I want to talk for a moment before we kind of look at a passage of scripture together. Um, I want to talk for a moment about what we are canceling and, and why we're canceling it. Uh, last week, at the beginning of this last week, um, we saw that the, the, the president asked for 15 days of isolation and to basically kind of a self-quarantine, social distancing, I guess they're calling it. And they're canceling or calling for the cancellation of sporting events and concerts and theaters and public gathering places. And even my favorite restaurant got shut down and, and is unable to do anything but take out. And uh, <clears throat> so we had to, as elders, make a decision about what to do for our social gatherings, our services. And we met together in a conference call and discussed it. Should we cancel? And if so, how and what would our options be for how long, etc. We have decided to cancel this today's services. Obviously, here we are. And next Sunday, March 29th as well. After that, we're going to have to evaluate it <clears throat> on a week-by-week basis just to see um, how things are going and, and where culture is at, society is at, the world is at, and what's happening. I think we'll know more in seven days, hopefully a week, a little more than that. Um, <clears throat> what the progress of things are in terms of us being able to meet again. We have canceled these two services, and initially we were just going to leave it open to the various ministry leaders, people who taught the Bible studies and youth group, etc., to determine if they wanted to get together um, or not. No, there's no title of the sermon or word for the day just yet. Sorry, that doesn't mean the kids shouldn't listen to this, but I'm just reading the chat and that came up. Um but then basically everybody, all the ministry leaders, people who are teaching Bible studies and et cetera, decided to just kind of follow suit and cancel, which I think was a good thing in the end. Our spring conference scheduled for the end of May. That's still two full months away. A lot could change in the next 30 days. It could get worse. Things could get way better. Um, by the middle of May, we could all be laughing at this and saying, hey, you remember the Corona scare of 2020? That was fun, wasn't it? Good times. And so we're just going to evaluate the spring conference as well as Easter breakfast and worship services uh, henceforth, probably on a week to week or a every two week basis or something like that. And uh, so we will let you know. I would again encourage you if you haven't if you haven't signed up for the weekly update to do that on our website. We'll click on where it says sign up for our newsletter. Go there. Make sure you get the weekly update. Um, if you want something texted to you, uh, contact us through the website. We can sign you up for the texting plan where you get text notifications. Our reasoning for canceling it was really simple. Uh, I don't think that we had to. 
Um, there was the concern, it seemed to be legitimate concern for our flock and, and the health and safety of people. As elders, we don't we don't buy into the hype that the media is generating over all of this. Um, so we're trying to kind of keep a, a middle of the road approach. Um, oh, somebody says the sound keeps cutting in and out. It's not on my end, I assure you. So I'm glad we're just going through announcements here at the beginning while everybody gets that taken care of. Um, we are we are trying to take something of a middle of the road approach to this. I don't buy into the panic buying. I don't think we should be hoarding hand sanitizer and, and toilet paper and all of that stuff as if this is the end of the world as we know it. At the same time, I don't think it's something that we should ignore either. Um, personally, and I'm not speaking on behalf of all the elders here on me, but just me personally, um, I don't think it's something that should be ignored as if this is this is just another cold or just another flu. There seems to be good reason to think that this is more uh, significant than that, possibly potentially more dangerous than that. And so I think that the idea of keeping some distance and, um, and, and, um, canceling some things and trying not to be part of any kind of a spread is a good thing at this point. And so we're just trying to be measured in, in how we approach that. I have appreciated all the positive feedback that we've received as elders from the letter that we sent out earlier this week. Um, we didn't receive any negative feedback. So if you had negative feedback to send, I appreciate you for not sending it. Uh, all the good feedback that we got was great. Thank you for that. Um, you know that we're not trying to neglect the gathering of ourselves together. That is not something we want to do. We, we hate not being able to meet together. A lot of people have expressed that, that this is really, a, it's a rough thing, but they understand that, uh, it's necessary. And so I'm grateful for your understanding in that. Um, I, I want to get back to, I want to get back to meeting and gathering together as quickly as we possibly can. So this was done for the health and safety of the flock. And this might be an overreaction, honestly. And, and if it is, then, then great. We overreacted. And if it's not an overreaction, then that's great. We acted well. Um, but I, it, it kind of seems to be something where we think we should probably just err on the side of caution with this. And so that's what we're doing. And uh, we'll get back together and gather together as soon as we possibly can. I, I would hate to be doing this live stream on Easter Sunday. Um, in that case, we're definitely going to have to get Josh to do some singing and some songs from his place for us for the live stream. All right. <clears throat> now, one final announcement or word. Today's format is a little bit different. You'll notice I'm not in a pulpit, and some people ask, are you going to be standing in front of the pulpit, kind of preaching to an empty room um, on a Sunday morning? And the answer to that is no. I cannot think of anything more horrifying than the thought of trying to preach to an empty room. And so this is really not considered preaching, what I'm about to do in, in giving a study through a passage of Scripture. Um, this is not preaching or proclamation, and mainly because of the nature of of preaching itself, the nature of the preaching task. And I want to speak for a moment about that. This is a bit more casual because I do feel like I'm just having a conversation as people are chiming in on the chat and I'm seeing that come in. But we're having kind of a conversation here um, from my office and it is more casual. I'm not wearing a tie and uh, I'm not wearing a shirt that I would normally wear on a Sunday morning. And I'm not going to be preaching. I'm not going to stand up and, and start preaching to an empty room here or to a camera mainly because of a certain theology that I have about preaching. And I want to explain this a little bit because maybe some people really haven't thought about this. And uh, so I want to take a moment to kind of, to, to kind of uh, put this into your head. Preaching is not an act, nor is it a performance. So it's not something that you practice doing, and it's not something that you just 
do to an empty auditorium. That's that's not preaching. Preaching itself is a a three party event. You have the audience, you have the 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 preacher, and then you have God Himself, who is part of the audience. He is observing this, but at the same time, God is taking the preacher and the congregation and doing work in the hearts of both preacher and congregant and listener through his word as he is sanctifying them together as we study together and we experience the event together. That That's what biblical preaching is. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones one time was asked, it was later in his life, and I got this out of a biography by, um, by Ian Murray on Martin Lloyd-Jones, a two-volume biography. Uh, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked about publishing his sermons in written form, and he objected to it for years. He opposed any publication of his sermons. So the commentary that on the book of Ephesians and his upper room discourse commentary, his Romans commentary, those were all just published of his sermons, but they were published later in life because for years Lloyd-Jones opposed that. And his argument was really simple. He said, he would say, there is there is a difference between the word spoken and the word read. So when you are writing something intended to be read by somebody else, you don't use the same cadence, the same language, the same syntax, the same grammar, and all of that in writing that you do in speaking. And so to take the spoken word and to just put it into writing is not going to have the same impact. And because Lloyd-Jones believed something theological about the act of preaching itself, um, because we are commanded in Scripture to preach the word, Jesus was a preacher, the apostles were preachers, the Old Testament prophets were preachers. The act of preaching itself is a God-ordained means of sanctifying his people. And there's something that takes place inside the event of preaching with the person who is there doing the preaching and the audience itself. And if you're not there in that act at that moment, feeding off of one another, because if you're preaching, if you preached, then you know this. The preacher feeds off of the response of his audience. It is easier to preach to a room of 2,000 people than two people. Um, I would rather preach to 2,000. I'd rather preach to 20,000 people than two people. Um, and I don't like getting up in front of people. So I, it terrifies me the fact of the, the idea of standing up in front of 2,000 people or 200 people. But there is something that goes on, a dynamic that is created between the proclaimer of the truth and the hearer of the truth with the Spirit of God using the Word of God where the audience feeds off of the preacher and the preacher feeds off of the audience. When you stand up in front of people in an, in an empty room to preach, you're really not preaching. You're just acting. And preaching is not acting. It's not a performance. I don't, I don't, practice certain mannerisms. I don't practice certain hand gestures or certain voice inflection um, in the moment that I'm pre for, for the preaching event. I don't do that. And so it's not a performance that you can just sort of sort of cut out how you're going to do it and get up and do it. And it doesn't matter if there's anybody there or not. It really matters whether there's somebody there or not. And you or I can can watch a preaching event on live stream or on um, after the fact, like if it's been recorded, like our Sunday morning services are, you can watch that live or you can watch it recorded earlier, but it's not the same. It's not the same because you're not there and the preacher is not feeding off of you and you're not feeding off of the preacher. There is a communion that takes place in the proclamation of the word of God between hearer and proclaimer that is special and unique that those who watch it or read it later do not participate in or enjoy. doesn't mean the Spirit of God doesn't use his word in those instances, but he uses it in an entirely different manner than uh, in the live event in the moment. There's something happen in the moment 
that cannot be captured in a recording. It cannot be captured in viewing it remotely, and it cannot be captured in the written word. So, because there's nobody there, I wouldn't be preaching. I'd just be talking. And uh, so that's what I'm going to do today. I hope that makes sense. And hope that's, uh, I, I hope that helps you understand the, the why, why I wouldn't get up and do that. Um, and by the way, I hope it helps you to understand why being present for the proclamation of word is so important. Why we should not habitually absent ourselves from the proclamation of the truth. Because there is something that happens in that moment that cannot be captured any other way. It's something unique. And uh, as a believer, you need to understand what that is, that there is a theology going on there. There's a dynamic happening in that moment that is for your sanctification and good and for the sanctification and good of the person who does the preaching. And when we absent ourselves from that process, it minimizes, it detracts from that event and the work that is being done there. All right, not that it's mystical, but I hope you get what I mean. All right, so for today's lesson or um, discussion or me just speaking to the camera, whatever you want to call this because it's not a sermon, uh, I wanted to find something that would be kind of appropriate for um, for our time here, for what's going on in our world. So if you have your Bibles, turn, if you will, to the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm just kidding, not Ecclesiastes, no. I know that some of you are crying right now. Turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, I'm going to take you to the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 16. Um, something I just want to remind us all, our whole flock about here as we um, give some thought to, to what's going on in our world and what our response to it should be. John chapter 16, verse 33. <clears throat> Jesus says this, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good courage or take courage. I have overcome the world. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. I want to set up a little bit the context there of those words. When Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, he's talking about um, really the previous let me see, chapter 16, all of chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. So really it is the previous four chapters that he has in view there. Beginning the upper room discourse and his, some of his conversations with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. And chap, John chapter 16 is the uh, upper room discourse or the farewell discourse of our Lord. It's the final discourse that John records Jesus making. Um, and it, it took place after Judas had left the upper room to go betray Jesus. It took place while Jesus was walking at some point between the upper room where he had met with his disciples and enjoyed the Last Supper and instituted uh, communion. It took place that this discourse was given somewhere on the walk between that upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane, which brings us into John chapter uh, 17 and 18, John chapter 17 being the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So this whole discourse, 14, 15, 16, and 17, all took, takes place in that context. So when Jesus said these things I've spoken, he's describing the, the whole previous discourse, 13, 14, 15, and all of chapter 16 that he's been describing. Now, what, what has Jesus been doing in those chapters? He had been this was the final night of his life. He had just enjoyed dinner with his disciples, the Judas absent for that. This was his final discourse. He was preparing the 11 disciples for 
his departure. He was leaving the world. He was going back to the Father. He speaks of that. He was going to send them the Holy Spirit. The disciples at this point were not even really aware of what it was that was going on in terms of Judas's betrayal and the crucifixion, which was um, imminent, and then and the arrest, which would be in the garden just a few hours after this. The disciples weren't even really aware of all that that was going on. But Jesus had been preparing them for his departure, talking to them about being in the world and being not of the world and abiding in him, John chapter 15. In John chapter 14, he talks about the peace that should be theirs and the tribulation that they should expect and the gift of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. He describes for them the equipping that they would need and receive by the power of the Holy Spirit for their future ministry. He was preparing them for the near events, his crucifixion and his resurrection, as well as distant events after he would resurrect and ascend back to the Father. He was preparing them for their lives of ministries in this world and what their view of the world should be. So when he says in verse 33, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That that reference to the world is not the first time Jesus had mentioned world in that context of that upper room discourse That was not the first time he had mentioned that. He had said all kinds of things about the world prior to that, uh, even that night with the disciples. He talked about leaving the world and going back to the Father. He talked about the world not being able to receive him or the truth, the world not being able to understand the truth. He talked about the disciples being hated by the world. He says back in chapter 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. This is chapter 15, verse 18 and following. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had come and spoken to them, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they've done this to fulfill the word that's written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Then he gives to them the promise of the Holy Spirit in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 15. So Jesus has already said a lot about the world, but specifically our relationship to the world, that we are number one, first and prior, first and primarily, we are chosen out of the world. This he specifically says. He, there's a distinction that is drawn between those who belong to the world and those who belong to the Son. And if you follow the argument and John's teaching throughout the Gospel of John, you, need, you, you see this repeatedly. He speaks in John chapter 6 about the Father giving him a people. In John chapter 10, the the father again gives to him a people and he lays down his life for those sheep. Those are the sheep. The sheep hear his voice. He saves them. He gives eternal life. They're safe and secure. They're in his hand and the hand of the father because of the father's choosing and giving them to the son. So these are people, that's us, his sheep, which are chosen out of the world. The world being the mass of humanity. Out of all of the mass of humanity, of all the people who have ever lived out of all of humanity, out of those... The Father has specifically chosen some. And Jesus said in John 15, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Uh, That's us. We have been chosen out of the world, and we have been given, plucked as it were, out of the world system, out of belonging to the world, and we have been given as a gift by the Father to the Son. So that very act of our election and that we have been given by the Father to the Son 
says something about our relationship to this world. So in this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation because we are not of this world. We have the Holy Spirit given to us, something that the world does not have. We have the indwelling of the Spirit. We've been chosen by the Father, given to the Son, something that is not true of the rest of the world, those who have not been chosen. Uh, that's why Jesus could say to the Pharisees, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. If you were my sheep, you would hear my voice. You would come to me. I'd give you eternal life. I would secure you. But the Father has not given you to me. You're not of my sheep. That's why you will not believe. So those who do not believe, do not believe, not because they um, are kept from believing by God. They do not believe because they do not belong to the Son by virtue of the choosing and plucking out of the world by the Father and then giving them to the Son. So that sovereign grace that has been bestowed upon us, that we are given, defines and describes our relationship to the rest of the world, to the world, to the world system, to the world of unbelievers. And it tells us something that this world is not our home. And John, Jesus later in John chapter 17, he says in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Now, in John chapter 17, all that Jesus has said concerning the giving of the Father to the Son, all of it kind of comes full circle. It all kind of kind of culminates, uh, culminates, as it were, in Jesus's prayer on behalf of those whom the Father has given to him. So in John 17, verse 6, Jesus said in his prayer to the Father, I've manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. And the Father giving a people to the Son out of the world. John chapter 17, verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And Jesus describes a group of people given to him by the Father, separate and distinct from the rest of the world. Jesus distinguished between those who belonged to him and those who belong to the world. And what makes us to belong to the Son? Jesus over and over again says, it is the work of the Father in giving those people to him. He said, you gave them to me out of the world. The Father initiated this and gave those people to the Son, gave us to the Son. John chapter 17, verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. So here's our relationship to the world. Though we're not of the world, we're not part of the world, we're chosen out of the world. Verse 11, yet they themselves are in the world. We are here amongst those whom we do not belong to. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. That's us. We're not of the world. And the world has hated us. Why? Because we're chosen out of the world. The world doesn't hate us because we speak weird. The world doesn't hate us because we worship on Sundays. The world doesn't hate us because we use different language, because we have different priorities. The world hates us for one reason and one reason only. Well, primarily one reason and one reason only. That is because we are chosen out of the world and we do not belong to it. And so therefore, as Christians, everything we do and say, everything we are is markedly different from the whole world and the world system. And so the world hates us because the world knows that we don't belong to it. And if you act like the world and you lived like the world and you thought like the world and you spoke like the world and you had doctrine and theology like the world, the world would love you. 
But because we've been chosen out of the world, our otherworldliness is manifested in how we respond to that when we're brought to the Son, and therefore the world hates us. All right, so verse uh, 13, now I come to you that these may... Um, Verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Also, you sent me into the world. I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And so there in those word, words, Jesus describes the fact that the Father has chosen us out of the world and given us to the Son who has come into the world to save us. And then the Son has left us in the world so that we may reach the world and draw others out of the world. That's kind of comes full circle. Um, we are not of the world. We're supposed to be sanctified and then we are left in the world. And then the Son prays that we would be kept safe and secure and that even while we're in the world, the Father would be keeping us. So that describes our relationship to the world. Now, back to John 16, verse 33, where he says, I spoke unto you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take courage. I've overcome the world. I want to draw out of that verse three promises, three things that we are promised. Number one, you and I are promised tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. That is most certainly that we are going to have tribulation in this world. And we ought to bank on that. Jesus didn't sugarcoat this to his disciples. I mean, imagine imagine how this would have sounded to the, the disciples. On They're there with Jesus. They Judas has left. Jesus has done all of these, said all of these enigmatic, mysterious things about being betrayed into the hands of sinners and crucified. And, and now he spent three chapters kind of going through them. Look, I'm, I'm leaving you. I'm going back to the Father and, and I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He'll be with you. The world's hate you. I'm leaving you here in the world. The world hates you. You're going to have tribulation, et cetera. And, and what would have been going through their mind as they're wondering, what does he mean by all of this? What, what, what does he mean by I'm going to the Father? What does he mean by he's leaving us here? What does he mean by he's going to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit? All of that contained in those previous chapters. And then Jesus, rather than just saying, look, hey, everything's going to be fine, right? You guys will be okay. Um, everything's going to be good. I got, I got this. He doesn't say any of that. He, he just, I mean, it might be true. Uh, his care for us might be true, but he doesn't sugarcoat any of this for the disciples. You're going to have tribulation. The world is going to hate you. You're not of it. And things will get rough. As Paul said, in Acts chapter 14, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus promised us that we're going to have tribulation. We're going to be hated as Christians. The world is going to respond with hostility to the message of truth. And if they're not responding in a hostile fashion to our message, there's something wrong with our message. We're going to experience tribulation, even in the sense that's not necessarily spiritual, but in the sense that we experience death and trials and troubles and disease and just the natural results of being under the curse in this world. And this kind of brings us back to uh, what we're seeing going on in our world today when we, we seem like our culture, our nation, being the most prosperous one in the history of the world, we seem to be on the brink of self-ruination, um, panic buying and hoarding and interrupting of the supply chain all because of a virus that may be a threat and it may, may not be. Um, let's assume that it is genuinely a threat, this virus. It's something that we should expect, that we live in a cursed, fallen, sinful, disease-ridden, death-filled world. 
that death is going to strike all of us. We're, we're all going to die. We are promised tribulation. The older I get, I get, the more my body breaks down. And those of you who are older, older already know this. Um, you know, this is, you know, that, you know, that death is coming and you know, that death is settling in on you as everything begins to deteriorate. And it happens more and more the older that we get. Um, we know that we live in a fallen creation. And not only that, but not only in this fallen creation, but we live in, in a nation at a time when the veneer of, of comfort and convenience and ease and prosperity could be stripped away from us at any moment. And we're seeing that now. We don't even have an openly socialist system. And we see the shelves at our local grocery stores being stripped bare because people fear death. And it might get worse. It might get better. A week from now, next Sunday, we might be talking about how, hey, you can go down to Walmart and buy toilet paper without any problem whatsoever. You can buy hand sanitizer and Pastor Jim doesn't need to hoard it up anymore. That might be our discussion a week from now, or a week from now we might be saying, now we're rationing everything. This is like full-scale Venezuela. We don't know what the future holds. We do know this, that we're promised tribulation. And so when we experience some of this tribulation, uh, like we have here recently, or at least the precursors of it, we've at least, we've at least experienced a disruption in all of the comforts and conveniences that we have so much taken for granted in our culture and in our uh, in our society. And this should remind us, all of this veneer of civilization, it could be stripped away in an instant. We ought to be thankful for what we have enjoyed, but at the same time understanding that it could all disappear tomorrow. And what we enjoy in America is an anomaly in terms of what the rest of the world experiences. It's a not, This is not the norm. It is, it is not the norm that people enjoy this kind of prosperity, convenience, and ease. Being able to click a button and having something delivered to me from a company whose warehouse I've never seen, I don't even have to leave my couch and the UPS guy two days later will drop it off on my doorstep. That type of convenience is an anomaly in the world. It is an anomaly in the history of humanity. The freedom, the prosperity, the comforts, and the conveniences that we enjoy, brethren, that is not the norm of human history. The norm of human history is tribal warfare and people being sacked and people living and fighting daily the battle for bread and having to wonder and worry about where their next meal is going to come from. That's the norm of human existence for 6,000 years. We enjoy this little bubble of prosperity in the midst of all of that. And it's only a little bubble even in our whole world where we have neighbors that live to the south of us who don't even understand what it's like to enjoy the kind of prosperity that we have. What we enjoy is an anomaly in our world today, and it is an anomaly even more so in all of human history. And it could all vanish. And we need to be aware that Jesus has promised us tribulation, and we need not fear that. Because of the second promise, and that is that we are promised peace as well. We're promised peace as well. It looks like my computer here just froze up. I don't know what's going on. All right. All the rest of this I do from memory. We are promised peace. We're not only promised tribulation, but we are promised peace. Um, Jesus said in verse six, uh, 16, verse 33, uh, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And he speaks at the beginning of that. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Our peace truly is in Jesus Christ. 
And that's the peace that we have. We can have peace in the midst of tribulation. Even though he promises us tribulation, he also promises us his peace. He gives us this peace. He talks about leaving his peace with us at the beginning of chapter 14. He describes how, uh, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in, my, in me. Uh, he talks about going to his father's house to prepare for us uh, many rooms. His father's house has many rooms, and, and he has one prepared for us. He talks about giving us the Holy Spirit and sending his peace to be with us, the comforter who will comfort us in that affliction. Jesus has prepared us. He has promised us tribulation, and he has also promised us the peace that is to come, the peace that can come through a right relationship with him, the peace that can come when we rest in him and trust in his sovereignty. Uh, one of the things that I could have spent the day talking to you about today was the sovereignty of God in all of this, and I could have comforted you with that and said, as Spurgeon would say, that the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which we lay our head and that we can we can have the comfort of God in the midst of our tribulations and and um and, and we can rest upon the sovereignty of God and that is true. And I don't deny any of that. And I would affirm all of that. But you've been taught well about the sovereignty of God in salvation and in human history. And we've talked about that. I want you to understand that the sovereignty of God goes well with the purposes of God, it comes together with the purposes of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God, that he is working all things out for our good. He is orchestrating human history to be what he intends for it to be. He is working out the good of his people and the good of his church. He is doing all of this for a purpose. The sovereignty of God would be a terrifying doctrine if I did not at the same time believe in the infinite wisdom of God and his infinite love for us. Because he loves us infinitely, we know that whatever it is that is happening in the world is happening according to his sovereign plan, and he is working it all out for his glory and for our good. We can take comfort in that, and with the indwelling of the Spirit of God, we can behave and comport ourselves in such a way that we are not shaken by this, we are not disturbed by this, um, we are not upset by this, but we have the peace and the comfort that comes to us through the person of the Holy Spirit and uh, in his indwelling. Uh, that's what Jesus is talking about. Every, in every in every chapter of this Upper Room Discourse, Jesus mentions the coming of the Spirit. Chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, it's all the way through there. I'm leaving, you're going to be hated, you're going to have tribulation. The The peace and prosperity that we enjoy is, is an anomaly uh, we're promised that we're going to suffer. We're promised that we're going to be persecuted. We're promised that things are not going to necessarily be, we can't count on everything being uh, swimming for us all the time. But even in the midst of that, Jesus promises that we can have peace. We can have peace with him. We can have peace in the world. We can have peace in the midst of those tribulations and difficulties. So he promises us tribulation. He promises us peace. And I'm doing this from memory because my computer froze up. But he also promises us victory. He says in chapter 16, verse 33, Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. We can have that peace, we can have that courage, because he has He has promised us the victory. He has assured us the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ because of what he has done. Because of his act on the cross, he has victory over the world, he has victory over history, he has victory over every enemy. Death and disease, all of it will be made right in the end. He is sovereign over all of that. He is victorious over all of that. Um, and we can have that confidence that the same God who spoke the universe into existence, he is not leaving it spinning without orchestrating everything for our good and for his glory. So he has promised us tribulation. He has promised us peace in the midst of that tribulation. 
and he has promised us the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ because of what he has done. Um, one of the things, and the computer's fired back up here, so now I can... Oh, one thing I, one thing I do need to remind you of in the midst of all of this is Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. Uh, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity to the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is not our home. This is not our world. So if it is racked by disease and virus, and if, and if everything that we hold dear, materially speaking, is taken from us in an instant, this is not our home. And so I would like to leave you with this. Colossians chapter 3 tells us that we must set our minds on things above. Having been raised up with Christ, Paul says to the Colossians, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For, Paul says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears or is revealed, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the promise. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we are to set our minds on things above. So, are things with the coronavirus going to get worse, get better, stay the same? <clears throat> we don't know any of that. But here's what I'm praying for in the midst of all of this. Number one, I'm praying that this would end up serving to purify the true church of God in Jesus Christ. That the false gospel would be exposed. Um, I see on Facebook and social media a lot of mocking of the false doctrines and the false gospels and the word of faith teachers. I think that's all well and good. I don't have any problem mocking false doctrine. Uh, sometimes it deserves to be mocked. Sometimes it deserves to be ridiculed. Sometimes, all the time, it deserves to be called out and compared to the truth. Um, so all of these health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers that talk about having the ability to heal and raise the dead and heal the sick, they are, they are, their silence is speaking volumes. And I'm hoping that this whole fiasco, whether it gets worse or gets better, ends up exposing those charlatans, those hucksters, those hoaxers, those frauds for exactly what they are. Lying, money-grubbing, prosperity-seeking hacks who have co-opted the true gospel and used it simply to fill their own coffers. These men, the emperor has no clothes. Benny Hinn wears glasses. Bill Johnson wears glasses. These men can't even heal themselves. Um, they're dying. They're getting old. They're getting sick. They don't have the ability to heal themselves or anybody else, no matter how much faith they, hear, they have. And I hope that this whole thing ends up exposing them for the frauds that they are. And that the false ho hopes and the false confidences that Christians have, have possessed for far too long, that those would be exposed as well. Look, if our trust is in prosperity to save us or to make us effective, I hope that this whole thing exposes that for the fraud that that is. I hope that the government is exposed for the fraud that it is and not being able to protect us from this stuff. For far too long, we in the church, as well as those outside the church, have believed the government is the answer to all of our ills, that they will deliver us from global warming, from market crashes, from our lack of pay, that, that we deserve a certain level of prosperity, that we deserve health care, that we have a right to all of these things, and that they need to be provided for us, and the government is the one to save us from all of that. There is a whole political party in our country. Now, both political parties, actually, view government as the solution to all of our ills. 
everything that ails us. And I hope that this whole thing begins to expose that for the fraudulent hope that it is. And, and science as well, that science will be exposed for the fraud that it is. We're promised that science has the answers to everything. They don't have the answers to everything. And that if we are placing our hope and our confidence in, in ease and comforts and conveniences, that this would shake us from that and that we might recognize that we can enjoy these things without placing our hope in these things. I think the, the church does some of its best work when it is not prosperous, when it is not at ease, and when it is not comfortable. And if things get worse, look, we're promised tribulation, we're promised peace, and we're promised victory. If things get worse, it will be the opportunity for the church to do its finest work in our generation. Um, second thing I'm praying for, not just the purification of the church, um, by exposing the false gospels and the charlatans and the fake believers, but also by making us as Christians realize we're a true hope and where our true confidence is. But also I'm praying for revival in our world through the preaching and proclamation of sound doctrine. And I would hope that among the many fake churches who just do church as a, as a way of entertaining goats, um, that they just do church as the sort of the thing to do on Sundays. So it's a, your self-help therapeutic deism. I'm hoping that this exposes that and that, um, the people will look at this and say, what, what was our church doing? Where, where were the real Christians during all of this? And I pray that there might be revival in the church, beginning with the church through a reformation of sound doctrine. Not the type of revival that takes place, quote unquote, supposedly amongst false teachers with false gospels, but a true revival in the true church. And then third, I'm hoping and praying that this will make us to evaluate something regarding ourselves and that there might be that God might accomplish our own personal sanctification through all of this, whatever trials or tribulations await us. And once again, it might get worse, it might get better, I don't know. But I hope that this whole thing causes us to reflect upon our own relationships with those in the church. Am I loving and serving and caring for others? Am I considering other people as more important than myself? Um, is my church and my church family and those who are my true family of God, are they really what is most important to me? Do I care for them? Do I love the assembling of the saints? Do I love and truly desire to gather together as often as I can to worship, to hear the preaching of the word, to enjoy the fellowship that exists among us as saints? Um, I hope that God uses this to sanctify his people and to make us holy and to really strengthen the bonds of fellowship and the unity of the true church. This is an opportunity for us to shine with each other amongst ourselves, and among ourselves, I should say, as a church. As we look around and say, look, I, some of you out there maybe have been hoarding toilet paper for years, and there might be other people down the street in our fellowship who are out for whatever reason. And isn't it stupid that we even have to talk about toilet paper in the midst of this whole rush. I mean, it's just absurd. But anyway, um, you have opportunity, you have means, and there are other people who have needs. This is our opportunity to meet that, to serve others, and to demonstrate that we can be concerned about the welfare and the well-being of others, not just materially, but spiritually as well. This is our opportunity that we, we can't be enjoying fellowship with each other a hand-to-hand, face-to-face, shaking hands and enjoying face-to-face conversation. 
Take the opportunity to text somebody, to email somebody, to call somebody, to check up on somebody, to pray for somebody. May this strengthen the relationships that we have and that we enjoy amongst us as believers as we as we unite together in love and, and truly consider other people as more important than ourselves. And the last thing I'm praying for is that this would be a gospel opportunity for the true, for the true church, a gospel opportunity. People naturally have a fear of death. And so we just need to ask them, do you fear dying? Do you fear the coronavirus? What if this does get worse? Have you thought about where you would go in the event that this does take a turn for the worse? We're all going to die. And I hope that the fear, justified or not, I hope that the fear itself is something that makes us really evaluate whether we are prepared to meet a Savior or our judge. If you're watching this live stream because you dialed into our channel or um, because you're watching it later, if you're watching this and you do not know Jesus Christ, I have some news for you. Here's some good news. You do not need to fear the coronavirus. COVID-19, that, that's, that's not a threat to you. But that statement is also the bad news because it means that the COVID-19 virus is not your greatest threat. Your greatest threat is the wrath of God if you do not have a sacrifice for your sins. So if you're, you're staring into your camera, your phone, your television set, and you're watching this live stream, COVID-19 is not your greatest threat. That's not what will do you in. COVID-19 can only kill a body, and you ought to fear the one who can cast both body and soul into an eternal hell. You have every reason to fear the wrath of God if you are not in Jesus Christ, because God has been keeping track of your every crime against him, your every lustful thought, your every lie, your every gossip, your every wrong motive, your every hateful, vengeful thought is an act of murder in his eyes. Every act of greed, of jealousy, of covetousness, of strife, backbiting, the use of your tongue, dishonoring your parents, worshiping false gods, not giving him the honor that he is due. All of those things are acts, are high crimes against a benevolent God who has done nothing but shower you with grace. You've taken his name in vain. You've blasphemed the name of the one who has given you life and showered you with goodness and good things to enjoy. All the prosperity and the life and the things that you have enjoyed in this world. He's given them all to you. And you've used his name as a common four-letter curse word to express disgust. You have every reason to fear that God on Judgment Day. Because your sins, if they were counted up and numbered and counted against you on Judgment Day, which they will most certainly be unless your sins are forgiven, they would be more than you can bear. That's why David, that's why the psalmist says, if, if, if the Lord were to mark iniquities, who could stand? Who could stand before him on judgment day? If your rap sheet were read on that day, if, you, if the rap sheet against you, all of the, the accounting of your sins, your crimes against God were read one by one, how long would that take? Allow the weight of that sin to cause you to understand and allow your realization of that to, under, to cause you to understand how much you need a Savior. Friends, that's the bad news. COVID-19 is not your greatest threat. The wrath of God is if you're not in Jesus Christ. If you're not in Him, if you have never repented of your sin and trusted Christ, you will face God on Judgment Day, and the full weight of His wrath against you for all of your sins will be counted against you. 
and the full wrath of the full weight of his wrath will come down upon your head. That is his promise. That is the teaching of scripture. That's the bad news. But there is good news. And the good news is that you can be forgiven of your sins in Jesus Christ. The good news is that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was fully God. He came into this world. He took upon himself human flesh, joined himself with human nature. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He kept all of the law that you have broken. He accumulated infinite righteousness because of who he is and because of his perfect obedience to the will of God. He lived a perfect life. And then he suffered and died in obedience to the will of the Father on the cross in the stead, in the place of any and all who will believe upon him. He died for sinners. If you count yourself a sinner, there is room in the atonement and the, pay, the purchasing work of Jesus Christ for you. You must come to him. And the Bible commands you this day to repent of your sin and to believe upon the one who died in the place of sinners so that you can have eternal life. Trust Christ. He is the sacrifice for sin. He is the sacrifice for sinners. And if you come to him and you turn from your sin and you believe and trust savingly, you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he will forgive your sins and will grant you eternal life. That is the promise of Scripture. COVID-19 is not your greatest threat. The wrath of God is. Make sure that you know where you would go if you were to die today. Make sure that you do not make leave this opportunity for you to think about your sins and the, the end of your life. Do not leave it without making sure that you know that your sins are forgiven because you have trusted in Jesus Christ, the perfect payment and sacrifice for sin and for sinners. Believe upon him today and you'll have eternal life. That is God's promise to you. Now, for those of you who are Christians, remember, we've been promised tribulation. Don't let this shake you. We've been promised peace that is ours in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We have peace with one another. We have peace in the midst of our turmoil, a settled reliance upon the trust and the sovereignty and the grace of God. And we have been promised victory. This world is not our home. If we get taken out of it, we, to die is gain. So Paul said, to die is gain. This world, our citizenship is in heaven and this world is not our home. We've been chosen out of it. And if we perish, we perish. And if we die, if we live, it's Christ. If we die, it's gain. That's his promise to us. So those are the things that I'm praying for. And uh, man, this has almost become like a whole church service and we didn't even have Josh singing. So I'm going to have a word of prayer and then we will stop the live stream and we'll go on with our day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do love you and we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ for our sin. And for those of us who know that our sins are forgiven and that Christ has paid the price for them, we rejoice in the victory that that has secured on our behalf, the forgiveness that we have because of what Christ has done, and the peace that we have in him with you because of that atonement. And we thank you that we can know that our hands and our times are sovereignly appointed and ordained by you for your good or for your glory and for our good. And we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are wise and that you are loving and that you, by your wise and loving providence, do dispose of all your creatures and all of your creation according to your ordinances, according to your decrees and according to that which will accomplish your eternal glory and the eternal good of all those who believe upon you. So we thank you that we can trust a God who rules the nations, who knows of all of our tribulation 
before there was anything for us to worry about and anything for us to experience the loss of. It all rests in your hands and we can trust you and we thank you and we love you. And it is the joy and delight of all your people to rest in that. So give us that peace, the peace that comes through trusting in your goodness. Help us to rest in that and to always remember that it is not just your sovereignty which gives us that peace, but it is also your your love and your wisdom that accompany that sovereign disposal of all things that grants us the peace in the midst of all of our tribulations. So make us at peace. Make us at peace in our hearts and to trust in you and to wait upon you. We do pray for our world and for our nation. Lord, we we desire to see the best come from this. We pray that through this, through all of this affliction, if it is to get worse, if it is to get better, or if it is to remain the same, our prayer is the same, that you will use this to purify your church, to sanctify your people, to bring revival to our nation, to expose frauds and hucksters and power brokers and people who are using this for political or monetary means. We pray that you would expose that, that you would make that evident to all, and that you would teach us as a church and as a nation all that we need to learn through whatever affliction and tribulation you have appointed for us. Help us in the midst of this to be the true church, to use it as a gospel opportunity for your purposes and for your gospel and for your word. Help us to be to use every opportunity that is given to us to magnify your great name and to make it great among the nations and in our nation the best that we can. Give us boldness, not just the opportunity, but the boldness to present the gospel and to do it with clarity, with love and compassion, and to do so in a way that honors and glorifies you and your truth. We pray that through this you would reveal in us our own dependence and our own idols, the idols of our heart that we put up. Help us to see how we have trusted in our own prosperity, our own material blessings and material things in a way that dishonors you. Help us to enjoy the things of this world without being of the world or by placing our faith and our confidence in the things of the world. So expose all of that in our hearts, sanctify us. We pray that you would meet the needs of those in our congregation who have physical and spiritual and material needs. We pray that through this, you would teach us more of yourself and of your word and help us to rely upon the grace that you give in Christ and in your word. We love you. We thank you. We do pray that you would accomplish all your good purposes for your people, for your glory, and for the good of those who trust in you. We thank you for these things, Father, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I hope that this has been a blessing and a benefit to you. Um, I know it's probably different than many of you expected, and this lasted longer than I certainly would have thought that it was going to last. I thought this would go to like 1120. Here we are, 1145, which is the end of a normal church service. Uh, it probably would have lasted a little bit less lengthy if I hadn't have lost my notes and everything in the middle of this and had to wing most of what I just did. But um, I got everything fired up, and I'm going to shut down the live streaming now. Take one last sip of coffee. Lord willing, we'll be back here next week. For adult Sunday school class, we have two options. We can I can do a Q&A, or we could get Dave Rich in here, and both of us could do a Q&A, and we could talk about the subject of, is it ever okay to lie? That was the Q&A or the question from today, this morning, that I kind of left hanging out there. And... Um, and that was sort of intentional. I'm going to drop that off next week. I'm going to drop that into the Q&A next week. And maybe uh, maybe Dave Rich coming in here, we could start something, a little podcast or something like that. We've talked about that as being a fun thing to do. 
But anyway, uh, Peter, for post-edit, you can cut out everything after the closing prayer. And I'm going to now take my take my phone down and stop the live streaming. Friends, brethren, I love you. I care for you. I've been praying for you this whole week. Um, I don't know yet what we're going to do next week for a message or a lesson, but we'll figure something out. I'll figure something out. And um, until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I sound like Justin Peters, didn't it? Justin, you watching this? That's Justin's close. That's Justin's closer. All right, I'm stopping the live stream. Take care, you guys. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.